Good afternoon and welcome to the Knife Hour. I'm so excited you guys have decided to join us today because our guest speaker is amazing. He's done every nerd franchise from Star Trek, Alien vs. Predator, X-Men, Planet of the Apes, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Fantastic Four, Daredevil, Hitman, and Fight Club. On top of that, some of my favorite like indie darlings, Hope Floats, uh, The Slums of Beverly Hills, which is amazing if you haven't seen it, uh, Jingle All the Way, Never Been Kissed, Dude Where's My Car, Monkey Bone, Shallow Howl, and Cheaper by the Dozen, Behind Enemy Lines, a Midsummer Night's Dream, which is perhaps the best rendition of Midsummer Night's Dream ever put to film. It's amazing. Um, please help me in welcoming NYFA's LA producing chair department, Richard Thorne. How you doing? Rich. Rich. Uh, you're making me tired listening to all those <laughs> things I did. I mean, that's that's a, that's a lot of work. It's an impressive body of work. It's Thank so you. much. Thank you. It's wonderful. I want to talk to you uh, first a little bit about how you got into film, because that's always a fascinating story for me to hear. How I got into film? Yeah, even Or how I got into the business. I want to know how you got into... Where did your original passion for the film industry come from, for being a part of it? Like, what made you want to be in film? Um, I was an artist as a kid. Uh, I loved organization. Um, I studied art to an extent. And when I got into college, really... I actually started out of college as an economics major and didn't, didn't know... It did, I, I sort of I know why I did that, but after a semester of failing economics in college, I decided that that's not that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't right for me. And um, I went to Cal State Northridge, and I was looking for something that uh, could utilize the skills that I thought I had. Mm-hmm. And so I tried film, and it didn't take because I was a movie buff and a TV buff and. Uh, you know, when when you're a kid growing up, back in those days, which was when you know people actually used film, and mm-hmm. most every TV show was live. You know, there was hardly videotape back in the day. Um, we didn't have the exposure to to what it took to get into into the business. And once I got into uh, into film school. I fell in love with it. I mean, I fell in love with every aspect of it. Um, I mean, I can talk about how I do love every aspect of the business now, but back then, I discovered as a young student who really knew nothing that if there was some place in life that I could uh, apply myself, uh, that was probably probably the area. And I turned out to be right, and I was very lucky. <laughs> Very, very lucky. That's amazing because I feel like we get a lot of stories where people feel like, you know, you have to be a Spielberg where you were shooting movies at like eight or you've missed your opportunity or chance. People say, I started too late and I'll never get in the film industry. And it's nice to hear that, you know, you can come to it when when you find it and it'll still be there for you. And it's it's kind of an amazing industry. So I know you started your career in editing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that, because you made some big strides in getting, (laughs) like, uh, VFX for television. Yeah. Well, the, the the fun or funny story about how I got involved in editing was uh, I, I did an internship at the Burbank Studios and then an, uh, through Cal State Northridge and then another internship uh, at NBC. And at NBC, I was working, uh, I had a functional job in the programming department, which is the department, uh, NBC Burbank, It was it's the department that decides what shows go on the air. And it just so happens that that I did the audience research that showed after the first season of Saturday Night Live that 
the audience loved Chevy Chase, but they mm-hmm. actually loved the Not Ready for Primetime players more. Oh. And so I couldn't tell you exactly what I wrote in the report that went back to New York. But it was basically saying that the audience would would love to see more of a blend of all of them because it was back back when it originated. Um, they didn't have a guest host; it was Chevy Chase, who was sort of the weekly host, yeah, and the rest of the cast. And so they changed that in the second year, and Chevy Chase was gone. And so I've always felt like the report, the research that I did, and the report report that I made, sort of had something to do with that. But that was a, that was as a believe it or not as an intern. Wow! My first job at NBC was uh, prize coordinator for Wheel of Fortune. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah, and it's exactly what it sounds like it is. I was they would win their prizes and then we'd get their paperwork, and they'd complain that they had to pay taxes and they, we would we would barter <laughs> and sell some of the things they wanted to balance out the taxes that they had to pay. So if you want a car. That was thirty thousand dollars. You had to pay whatever it was twelve thousand, fourteen thousand dollars in taxes. Yeah. So they would sell everything else that they that they won in a way, and we were sort of in charge of helping that. See, I anyway, thought you were calling companies to get like the prize packages. No, no, no. But you were doing no, that, that was, later that was, half. That was that was marketing people way way above me. I was a I was making two hundred and thirty two dollars a week as a as a entry level position. Exactly where everybody starts. Anyway, so um, when I was back in the programming department, I had the great fortune of being there during pilot season. Wow. And back in, back then, every network made between 25 and 35 pilots. And then they'd pick from the pilots which shows they wanted to put on the air next season. One day, I had the... Gr- one week, it was probably a month, I had the great fortune of working with Lee Lee Rich, who was the producer of The Waltons. Wow. He was developing a pilot. <clears throat> Excuse me, and, and he sort of took me under his wing and and we sort of became, you know, buddies, you know, if you can become buddies. And we were re editing his pilot because the first test audience test that was done on the pilot, and I don't remember what it was didn't come out well. Okay. And so audience research tells you which people they liked, what they didn't like about the show. Think, you know, they, they give you feedback on everything that's done. So we were, over the course of, I don't remember, it's probably a week or two, in editing rooms, which were archaic editing rooms. If you're, if you're geeky about stuff like that, you would love to see what these editing was rooms... Was it archaic for the time? No, no, no. Okay. It, was, it, was, it was state of the art at the time. It was NBC. But it, in comparison, I mean, you can do light years beyond anything we could ever do then on your Mac. And those machines back in the day were a quarter of a million dollars a piece for one tape machine. Anyway, wow. so I, I spent that time with Lee Rich, with the editor and Lee, and we, as a team, re-edited the show. I didn't have any any contact with the machines. I was just there sort of as the... Uh, NBC liaison Um, and I sort of fell in love with what we were doing the ability to take all of the footage and 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 figure it out and put it all together and rearrange it and you know life is life is luck life is luck or not life is opportunity life is is a series of things that happen that 
you make good choices or bad choices about um, which path or which opportunity you take. Anyway, the point is, about two weeks later, NBC went on strike. The union went on strike. Holy moly. NAPIT, National Association of Broadcast Engineers and Technicians. And I was, I was a, essentially an executive. And so we had been planning for months that if NABIT went on strike, all of the uh, management employees would scab their positions. And, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, NBC went on strike, and they assigned me to be a cameraman on the John Davidson show. Wow. And the last thing I wanted to do wow. in my life was be a, a big, gigantic camera. Yeah, the ones that are like on giant big, wheels. Yes, oh, the big, goodness. gigantic camera. The last thing I wanted to do in my life was stand there and be a cameraman. Not that I have a disrespect for a cameraman, because I certainly don't. But it wasn't me. Sure. And I, I went down there and I said, guys, you know, I, I have skills. I have knowledge. I, I, you, I, I would love to go into editing. You know, I can really help you out. And, and, and they said... I don't remember exactly how it went down, but they said, okay. So I started editing. I was editing Days of Our Lives um, live. I, was, I, was, I would do Tonight Show edits I would, because there were times where bad things happened on the Tonight Show that you would have to just cut out and, and we'd have to re-edit the show, which was really basic. So I did that for three months while the union was on strike, and... Um, by a, a chain of luck, I went to ABC. I did that. Went to a I left my job, went to ABC, and three months later got a job that became the job that I had, which was eventually to become the president of the Post Group. And, you know, I started out as an editor, and, and one thing led to another, and I wanted to invent an industry, and the people that I worked for at the time, eventually I became one of the owners. But the people I work, worked for at the time really gave me carte blanche to do whatever I wanted. And um, that doesn't answer, answer your editing question, but it does answer how I started. Yes, yes. No, that's, that's a wonderful <clears throat> story. I know that you did some editing on The Wrath of Khan, like a, a second release where you did the uh, read its visual effects. No. Did I misunderstand that's, yeah, that? Yeah, that's the... Actually, I was, went out to dinner with one of the people that was involved in that 30 years ago, and... Um, what the story was, what the story you're talking about was, was um, I, what I tried to do at uh, my company, which was the Post Group, which is now out of business, was one of the biggest and best and certainly most advanced post-production visual effects companies in the world. Um, I wanted to be, I wanted to be able to do on video on digital video, what George Lucas did on Star Wars. Yeah. And so from, and, and the technology in the Star Wars, in, in the original Star Wars days, days didn't exist. So in the early 1980s, and certainly that makes me dating myself, um, there was digital technology, technology began to develop. And I, because I had so much freedom with my company and, uh, we fortunately had the financial wherewithal to buy products and des and have certain digital pro products designed for us. I worked with companies like Quantel and Abacus and Ampex and 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 on and on and on to 
develop digital technology that would allow us to do visual effects and compositing and, and uh, 3D work in the video world, which at the time was NTSC 525 line or, you know, eventually became digital 522, but a 422, but it was, it was the old aspect ratio. So we were somewhat limited. Anyway, the story you're asking me about is Wrath of Khan. Um, and like I said, I had, we, we joked about this last night. Uh, Next Generation was, was up on the docket at Paramount. And up until that time, which was probably 1984, I want to say, um, there was no such thing as any kind of digital technology which could do what ILM and Lucas, Lucasfilm did on Star Wars in the digital world. But my goal the whole time, I was building all of this, this, these huge editing rooms and very expensive editing rooms, was to be able to do Star Wars. Little did I know at the time that a show called Star Trek, which had obviously been a series back in the day, um, was uh, being revamped and, and Next Generation was coming out. And they walked into my office and said, um, we're going around town to see, uh, to see what company, if any, can do the kind of work that ILM did on the Wrath of Khan for the original feature, but do it digitally and there, thereby saving us time and money and being, yeah. able, being able to advance technology and advance the way we make te- television programs you know, especially big outer space television programs. Yeah. And um, I, I, I'm not going to mention all the names. but the, the <laughs> You inten- could, though. Peter Lauritsen, uh, Dan Curry, Rob Legato, Fred Chandler, Gary Hutzel uh, were all of the original Star Trek team. Wow. And they came into my office, and what they had, what they, they had a, they had a reel, but they had everything uh, laid off onto digital tape, the way it should, but they what they had was they had had eight shots from the original movie, mm-hmm. and then on another reel they said, "Okay, here are the elements that ILM used to put those shots together, which was compositing and and different visual effects technique, a little bit of three D, a lot of paint work, a lot of roto work, and and whatnot." And um, they showed me the original the, the the you know the original shots from the movie. And they showed me all the elements that they that they had available to them to put it together, uh, and they said, "Can you do it? Even though we've got a lot of stuff that's missing." And I said, "Yeah, sure." And they looked at me, and I, they, I said, "What's your time frame?" And they said, "Well, what's your time time frame?" <laughs> and I vaguely remember saying, "Like, you know, give me a couple of days, and we'll get it done." And they said, "No, no, no, you don't understand. I mean, this is." It's going to take you longer. I said, okay. And I thought to myself, it's not going to take me longer, but I'll tell you a week. Will you be happy if I say let's reconvene in a week? And they said, yeah. So we put it all together, and we were doing side-by-sides because my goal was to make it look seamless. My goal was to uh, make them (laughs) – I'm giving it away – my goal was to make them not be able to tell the difference between what ILM did in the original movie versus what we did uh-huh. with the same elements. And it was a cloaking effect, and it was a transporter effect, and it was 
compositing uh, the Enterprise onto a star field and a, and a, and a, a, a what do you call it, a leap to hyper... The hyper jump? Yeah. So cool. So it was, it, was all, it was all of these things, you know, um, the, you know, the Klingon cloaking effect, which we had to come up with. And anyway, so we had a big lunch uh, the following week to celebrate. And uh, we all gathered around. It was a really a big deal for all of us. Sure. And, and you know, as it turned out, kind of a big deal for all of them because they were with us for the next 15 years through My all goodness. of the series. Um, but, uh, so I, so I said, so what do you, where do you guys want to start? And Peter said, just show us what you guys did. And, uh, I don't remember how we were set up, but we played the reel and I, I'm, I watched Peter kind of go, oh no. <laughs> and I said, Peter, what's the matter? He said, you just, you didn't get it. You didn't understand what we were looking for. He said, we wanted you to take all of the elements and put it together like it was in the original movie. I said, Peter, that's what we did. That's what you're looking at. And he said, no. So he thought he was watching the original? He thought he was watching the original. Oh, my God. And at that moment, we got the job. Oh, my God. That's I mean, amazing. It was that very moment in time that he said, no, you know, you got to re- re- rewind it. He, he said, no, it's not, no. Wow. And, and he, I said, look at your original. He looked at the original. And we said, look at, I can tell you where there's differences, <laughs> right? And I showed him where the differences was. And we made the deal on, on the Same day. Same day. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. So you brought digital visual effects to television. When you watch something like Battle of the Bastards, which is kind of the Game of Thrones quintessential episode for this past season. I'm not I'm not up there yet. Oh my goodness. I'm in season when you two. Get, when you get a chance, the it, it is uh it is perhaps the best war scene uh put to screen since maybe Saving Private Ryan. It's so suffocating and incredible and the scale is huge. But I wonder even for, for other series, when you see VFX there, are you like I had a little bit of a hand in that. I, I got it to TV. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I used to be called in, within the industry uh, sort of affectionately the father of digital technology. <laughs> I, I slid into first third base one day because I play baseball, and I slid into third base one day and was dusting myself, stood up and was dusting myself off, and I looked up uh, and... and uh, the voice behind the the mouth guard, the third baseman was wearing a mouth guard. It was Michael Green who was in charge of the the not the Emmy Awards the the um, well it doesn't the matter the Globes or the Oscars not the go- no 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 a sound uh, music uh, oh Grammys the Grammys yeah. he, was in, he was in charge of he was the president of the Grammys and he was playing third base for the opposing team and he said oh my God it's the god of digital. <laughs> And I looked at Michael and I said, oh, my God. And, and, and so so the answer to your question is, you know, there's a lot of talent out in the world. And there are leap years worth of, of, of technology, technology changes since those days. But there were a half a dozen of us who were the original pioneers of making that happen. I mean, we were... You know, back in those days, well, I suppose it's kind of the same as it is today, but we were users of equipment that were driving 
the manufacturing and the technology so that it would give us capabilities that we didn't have but we needed and wanted and knew mm. what we wanted. I mean, and, and sort of if you look at After Effects or Maya or you look at any of the current uh, techno tech digital technologies, which are essentially software, they're all actually it all start goes way back to George Lucas and and optical printing techniques which have which themselves evolved over the years which are the techniques that I used in trying to recreate all of that stuff digitally I mean I was it's it's all the same as it was a hundred years ago conceptually yeah with different tools so Let's jump into that. For students looking to get started and they're interested in VFX, I've heard a lot of different um, approaches. Some people say you need to learn all, like, just make a, a movie and start learning the techniques there. I've heard some people say, just start playing around. You can get the software. It's inexpensive. Just start there. And I've still heard other people say you need to start with special effects and then work your way over into VFX. Yeah, that, that I would definitely disagree with. I, I, the special effects world... The special effects world doesn't like the visual effects world. I mean, every time I walk onto a set, without without fail, the special effects uh, supervisor or coordinator will walk up to me and say, "You know, dude, you're you're taking our jobs away from us." Oh my goodness! And so, and it's true. I mean, we do smoke, we do fire. That's we don't do wind. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can do wind, um, but. Uh, it's sort of the way it is, you know. Um, you know, but you did, still have to work with those guys, right? I mean, yeah, of course. I mean, we're not taking their jobs on purpose. Right. We're just, we're just the, the the way the business works out is, uh, you know, everything's very expensive nowadays. I mean, you make a hundred million dollar movie, and you're sort of making a cheap movie. You mentioned mm-hmm. um, Hitman Agent Forty Seven. Mm-hmm. We were trying to make a seventy-five or eighty million dollar film for twenty-five. My goodness! We ended up only because the studio gave us additional money to go back a year later and add more things to the movie. We ended up spending thirty-five to make a movie that, in that arguably and, and theoretically looks like a seventy-five million dollar movie. Well, why don't we check out the trailer really <laughs> quick for this movie that? That it's always fascinates like me. Almost like I planned the transition. What? <laughs> That's crazy. I didn't know that uh, it started off uh, trying to shoot for such a low budget. Um, it was actually a $15 million budget originally when I signed up in 2012. I know for those of you listening at home, $15 million sounds like everything, but it goes quick. We can play. Guy was cocky. Forty-seven. He was That's not a name. He's sort of no. a comic actor. Yeah. But it is mine. What exactly are you? An assassin. And you're here to kill who? You should really let me go. The last time I checked, you're the one locked in here with me, and Nuh-uh. I'm the one with the gun. <laughs> no, Mr. Sanders, you're locked in here with me. And you just brought me mine. So cool. Stand up next to the mountain. 
Look, I know this is gonna sound strange, because it is. He's an engineered human being. Stronger. Faster. More intelligent than normal people. They're called agents. What does any of this have to do with me? Your father started the agent program. He knows their weakness. You're the key to finding your father. Favorite scene in the whole movie, right there. a good action movie so much a lot of stuff going on a lot of That's explosions sure. train crashes yeah. uh, uh, airplane turbines sucking people in and just exploding themselves That's, helicopters falling out of the sky normal. you don't see that every day i live in la so sometimes but oh, it's... you can go there are places you can go to it's amazing kind of stuff. so what okay i want to ask you how do you approach when you get a script and you know you're asked to take it on are, is your first step, let me talk to the director and get information? Are you trying to just break down the script and figure out where you're going to... Like, where, where do you start? It's a good question. Um, it's a, you know, it's, it's one of the things that, that I'm trying to develop uh, a, a stronger pathway course at uh, New York Film Academy and the producing department to... Uh, to get to answer your question for students, um, uh, I mean, obviously, you start up by reading the script and and uh, and and trying to get a vision. Um, you know, the 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 difference between books and scripts and television or film. Books are are made to give you the complete image that the writer wants you to uh, see. Mm -hmm. And so you have descriptions that, that, that good or bad writers write that create imagery and visions in your mind. Uh, obviously scripts are different because scripts are made, scripts become a part of a collaborative medium where the director and you know, a crew of 100 or 200 or 300 people get involved in interpreting the script into what, at the beginning, the, the, the writer wants, but secondarily and primarily the director wants, and, and tangentially the producers want, and tangentially the studio wants. Um, but especially with complicated scripts, you know, like Agent 47 or... Uh, uh, X-Men movies or any of the other films that I've done, you're talking about two things. You're talking you're, you're talking about a lot of different things. I mean, first of all, what does it look like? Um, what does the world look like? You know, is it is it the real world? Is it a hybrid world? Mm -hmm. Is it is it a storybook world? Uh, interesting story about, and I'm not going to go into the story, but interesting. You can go back to it if you want to. But interesting story about we developed 
the original X-Men with Brian Singer, Lauren Shuler, yeah. Donner, Tom DeSanto, Ralph Winter, myself, Mike Hendrickson, all in rooms on uh, on, on ongoing basis, bases, um, trying to figure out what the world looked like. And, and there was a script which evolved. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were iterations of the script, but... If you look at it, was X Men happened to be the first Marvel film ever made, and there were no, I mean, there was Superman and there were there was Batman, yeah, and Batman Superman was always Superman. He's always looked mm. like Superman. Batman, for the most part, comes from the comic book and then went to the TV series, and got a little bit more sophisticated in in the in the film iterations. Yeah. Um, the 89 original Batman. But we had we had a script and we were looking at a half a dozen comic books where the the creatures were huge, mm-hmm. you know, sort of sort of Macy's parade uh, uh blow-ups <laughs> of of people, you know, it was different. It was complete completely different. It was 50s and 1940s and 1950s imagery. So you guys were looking at Golden Age comics. Oh, that's still Age so, comics. So <laughs> we were actually trying to figure out in the very early days of X-Men how to make these big creatures and we you know we had different meetings about different things and different and 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 also meetings about cost of things because the original concept for the first X-Men was to do the movie for $75 million, which was big for a Fox movie, not necessarily in comparison. I mean, we'd already spent $200 million plus on Titanic. But, sure. but in the post-Titanic days, we were not spending $200 million <laughs> sure. on movies, especially an experimental one like X-Men. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, in that particular case, and I don't want to... I don't want to answer your question with X-Men, but in that particular case, it evolved, and it was largely, you know, um, I want to say it was Brian Singer who said, you know what, we're going down the wrong path. You know, we went and researched how to make these big, gigantic things, whether to go digital or put build gigantic suits. And Brian said, you know what, I, I, we're, we're going we're to have production designer and wardrobe people design what, what these people look like and... Mm-hmm. The neck at that point in time, the next and current generation of superhero uh, looks were born. I mean, it wasn't wasn't intended to be that way when we originally started it. So you asked me about looking at a script. It's always about a, a director vision. It's about the what's in the script, obviously. The director vision, because the, the it's the job of the director to bring. What I, I made a comparison between books and and scripts. The script is meant to be a, a a guideline for a director. It's not meant to be necessarily literal. Mm-hmm. Usually, directors and studios will want the dialogue to be taken literally, but a director has carte blanche. To do, to do with the script, what he feels brings it to life the best way. Sure. So, at the very beginning, everybody has a different vision. You know, you, you, you. People start read a script and start budgeting based on a vision they know, and and certain budgets will will reflect just basically what's in the script. But you know that as soon as you get involved with the director. 
I'm a I'm a huge proponent on uh, of storyboarding and mm. pre visualization, um, and it's actually become you know I'm thinking back to the mid '90s, uh, early turn of the century. Wow, <laughs> that really sounds old, um, but. Storyboarding, storyboarding was has always been there to an extent, and mm. previs has always been there to an extent. But it's now the current style of movies necessitates that you essentially make the movie in some form before Spielberg you. Spielberg kind of laid that down with Jurassic Spielberg, Park, right? Spielberg did that. In fact, uh, I was in the middle of. I, I was, <laughs> I was uh, new at Fox. I was an executive at Fox, and. Um, we had just had the huge success and the massive cost overruns on Titanic. Mm. And everybody was sort of freaked out about from that point forward maintaining costs and being able to budget a movie the right way. Sure. And so I actually did a seminar for all of the executives at Fox on storyboarding and previs and how you how you make... you. You make the movie before you make the movie, and and you both as a filmmaker, whether you're the producer, director, visual effects supervisor, makeup, wardrobe, uh, you know everybody involved. Uh, if there's storyboards and previs, at least of key sequences in the beginning, mm-hmm. then um, then everybody knows what you're doing, and and as well as the studio has some idea of the kind of film that they're going to be getting. So it happened to be Bill Mechanic was the the chairman of uh, 20th Century Fox at the time, and uh, he was concerned about a certain film, which which we started doing previews on. We were in the middle of uh, David Duchovny um, 90s film TV series uh, TV series. Oh gosh, X Files. X Files. We were in the middle of the first X Files movie. Sorry, that's okay. We got there. And it just so happened that one of the the producers of Jurassic Park was on the movie and had the video cassette that Spielberg did wow. of the previs of Jurassic Park. And I said, "Okay, this is this is a gift from God." Yes. I'm can I, can I borrow it? She said, "You can borrow it, but you can't <laughs> copy it. Mm. It's my own private copy, and it's my agreement with Spielberg sure. and all of them that you can't do anything with it." But you can show it to to everybody, and so I took it into uh, into a meeting, and I said, "Here's how you make a big movie on a budget," and I showed them probably the first ten, five or ten minutes of Steven Spielberg's pre visualization and storyboarding of Jurassic Park, and what he did was he he had actors come in and read all the dialogue he had music he had an editor he had an editor put it together he had storyboards for every single frame of the movie not frame but every every single shot of the movie wherever there were moving pieces that he needed to explain there was there was cgi versions of it there were there were really rudimentary uh cgi dinosaurs through the whole movie so you could watch before he shot one frame of film, yeah. the entire movie play, all the dialogue, all the dialogue was there. Some of the sound effects were there. Some of the, not the real music, but yeah. some music was there. So you you could actually, before he went into production, see what he did. Got a real sense of it. My goodness. And, and so, going back to your question, that's 
that should be the goal of every filmmaker is to uh, to know before you shoot anything what you're doing, whether it's just simple storyboarding, which is a great tool, or pre-visualization or pre-vis, which is really good for action scenes because it 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 not only tells everybody in the film what's being done, but it also helps you analyze the methodology for getting there. So um, let's go back to an earlier question. If you want to, if you want a career <clears throat> in visual effects, where do you get started? Um, you come to the New York Film Academy. <laughs> Learn from the best. Get ready. Um, you, uh, you know, I, I think that it's, it's uh, everything in, it depends on what you want to do. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, filmmaking, anything to do with film or television or, you know, it does any, with, when you're dealing with cameras and putting things together, learning technology, learning uh, story theory, learning writing, everything you can do to soak that in helps. Um, you know, I have a very eclectic career, and so... I don't know that I'm the best one, although I've probably been the the father or godfather to somewhere between 500 and 1,000 current careers in the industry through people I hired and taught and trained and, and, and you know, et cetera. Um, I just did what... I just did, I did, everybody had a purpose. Everybody Mm -hmm. was learning how to composite. Everybody was learning how to use CG. Everybody was learning how to tell a story. Everybody was learning how to edit. I mean, it was, there were things that we were doing that just everything was happening at once and the sort of the cream rose to the top and they became the compositors and the visual effects supervisors and in some cases visual effects producers that are currently out there today. You, you know, you're asking a what is essentially a simple question with an incredibly complex answer. Sure. You know the the what what I tell students, and I also tell my four kids is whatever you love and whatever your interest is and whatever wherever you feel passion in you and whatever. Whatever it is that you can do, if you if you want to get in the industry or you want to get into visual effects or you want to get into directing or sound or mixing or music, whatever it is that turns you on, find a way to hook into a company or a production company or a studio or even start out in school and develop your path and look at all of the paths paths that open to you for i mean in my case way back in you know when abraham lincoln was around (laughs) before he was shot um the paths were there weren't that many so it wasn't a complicated choice for me nowadays there are a lot more paths but there's also a lot more competition and there was competition then and fewer paths but less i mean it's all i guess proportionate but at the end of the day, the world needs experts, mm-hmm. and the world needs passion. And 
you know, I, I, I'm, I have, I'm very eclectic. I can be really good at a lot of different things. And then you, in one of those things that I'm really good at, I might get to a point where the, the, the curve goes down, where I've now reached the point where I'm not good where this has gone. Yeah. And so part of part of deciding what you do in, in your life is understanding who you are and what you're good at. And so if you develop, if you learn uh, Final Cut and you learn how to edit and you just go out and shoot things and edit them and you, you do things for the Internet and for web series and you do everything, the, the, the thing that you have to do to become good is I mean there there are books to read. I mean you have to watch movies. You have to watch TV shows. Mm-hmm. You have to take yourself out of the viewer seat and pay attention to as best you can. I mean once you get a little, it, it's hard to be a viewer and just imagine how it got put together. Mm-hmm. But once you've been through a couple of TV shows or a couple of web series or a couple of student films or been involved in making some movies you begin to understand how things get put together. And as you start to see how things are shot and put together and and how they come from the page to being this gigantic thing on this gigantic screen, you're building experience. So you watch movies, and, and it's, not, it's not about what you like. It's not about, oh, I'm going to go to this movie because I'm going to like it or I'm going to hate it or it's going to move me or it's not going to move me. Over the course of a career, most people will make a whole lot of movies that they like and a whole lot of movies that they hate, a whole lot of movies that are really good, and a whole lot of movies that are really bad, or TV shows, I mean, whatever whatever genre they're in. Mm. What I'm trying to say uh, is that you learn and you pay attention and you, I mean, you, you asked me a question was what... Uh, you Just how to, do you get started? How do you get started? But but but, is editing a good way to get into filmmaking? Mm. Editing is a is a is a is a craft. It's a skill. It's incredibly hard. But just about anybody can learn to edit. Could everybody in the world has a time clock in their body? Sure. Whether it's their pulse, the speed at which their brain works. Um, you know there are a lot of theories on imagery that you learn as 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 a as a film student or as an editor what 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 image how imagery works and how cuts work and dissolves and all these different things play on the on the human brain but ultimately editing is is a very simple thing that you can do on your mac the skill of editing is knowing timing knowing and, and having both understand bo- both having understanding your own time clock and when to cut how to pace and when when things need to go from hey. one to the next and how to do that and how to manipulate the audience in the same way so my experience as an editor was i edited probably 10 20 30,000 different programs literally over mm-hmm. i mean cuz you do one a day or two a day or five a day depending upon the length, over the course of, you know, 10 years. Unbelievable numbers of things, and I learned pace. And I, because I could, because I had clients that were either ooing and eyeing or going, eh, <laughs> you know, I don't know if that's working. And, and you learn, you learn by doing. And you just have to keep doing a lot. 
I like that advice. Go out there and just do it. Like, if you want to get started, just start. Just do it. Jump in. Yeah. And, you'll and if you don't have anything to edit, go take your, your iPhone out and go shoot a bunch of stuff. Take a music track and try and make a mu- music video out of it. And when it's, when it's okay, take a, take, go back into the editing room or go back onto your computer and do it again. And go get some more footage and see, what yes. you, see how you can build it and, and, and do that exercise. You I guys mean, would be surprised. Both um, uh, Tangerine, which, of course, nominated for an Oscar, but also uh, Nine Rides, which premiered last year at South by Southwest, both shot on iPhones. Uh, stunning works of film by great filmmakers. So there's really nothing stopping you uh, from going out there and getting started. Unfortunately, Rich, that is our time for today. We're getting the wrap-up symbol, but I just want to say thank you so much for coming in and joining us and sharing your wisdom. We really appreciate my it. My pleasure. Thank you, guys. Um, Next week, please come back and join us. We'll have uh, YouTube film director uh, Michael J. Gallagher in and NIFA alum. He's really excited to talk to you guys about how you can promote your products through social media and on YouTube and some of his films, including Smiley. So maybe go out there and check that out before you come watch our show next week, Thursday at 4 o'clock. This has been NIFA Hour for Popcorn Talk. Thank you for joining us. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.